Hello, and welcome to Modest Conversations. Uh, I'm here with a very old friend of mine, Raquel Bracken, um, who is currently at Venrock. She was one of the founding employees, one of the earliest employees at Clovis Oncology. And I've known since what? We were like 18? 18. Probably. Maybe 17. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, Since well before either of us had any jobs. That's right. (laughs) Um, And I've known your wife for even longer. That's true. you. You have known my wife longer than I have known my wife. True. <laughs> um, welcome to Modest Conversations. Great to be here. It's great to have you. So what do you want to talk about? So um, I have been thinking a lot about oncology and it being really the golden age of oncology drug development, which is so cool because <laughs> we have made these amazing biological discoveries in the last 10 years um, that have actually yielded insights that have led to drugs that um, are no longer sort of the, you know, non-specific cell poisons of years past. And they are actually targeted and smart and are approaching uh, levels of being almost as smart as a tumor, which is um, kind of a funny thing to think about, that tumors are smart. But um, in fact, they are these rapidly evolving uh trying to sort of gain every single survival and other advantage they can over the human body such that they, you know, are left at the end of the day and the human body is not. And um, it's kind of crazy to think about, but um, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the, the, um, this space that I I used to work in when I was at Clovis, um, uh, which is, is called uh, the DNA repair space Mm -hmm. of oncology. And the the basic idea is that um, tumors have gotten so smart that they have essentially hijacked uh, the way that um, they uh, they they mutate and they mutate so that um, they hope that in this sort of chaotic mutation that they generate survival skills or growth advantages or whatever um, and that allows them and sometimes that allows them to escape the drugs that they're being treated with they yeah. upregulate things or they downregulate things and they you know can escape the immune system or they can escape. Um, the drug that's being used against them. And, and it's it's clever and it happens like that. You know, it happens it happens super quickly. And so uh, one of the areas I've been looking at is kind of what, you know, can you exploit the thing that makes tumors the smartest? Um, is that thing also potentially their Achilles heel? Hmm. And that's the question that a lot of people have been asking. Um, it's a very poetic end to tumors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It is. Um, as you can see, I have, I have, I have a fascination with kind of you know how they evolve and how they how they survive. So can I yeah. can I back up like a few yeah. steps just yeah, yeah. because you're talking to a lay person yes. who pretends who likes to pretend like they understand everything. <laughs> okay. Um, so so a few things. One is you talk about the golden age of oncology and like where we are. I feel like I've been reading articles mm-hmm. since I was in middle school about smart drugs and how we're just on the precipice and we're almost there and da 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 What is fundamentally different about 2017, right, and where we are today versus, you know, when we graduated from school 10 years ago? Yep, yep. So I think, um, so I think you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, we were, we were, and frankly, some tumor types still are in the age of just, of, of chemotherapy. And the yep. hope was, you know what, 
chemotherapy kills... Just knock everything out. And it kills, you know, rapidly dividing cells, right? Yep. Which is why your hair falls out. Um, you know, you sometimes get skin issues. Anything that's rapidly dividing, the chemo uh, kills it. And we thought, you know what? That's a that's a pretty good start for, for killing tumors because they're rapidly dividing. Yep. Um, and then what we realized um, through discoveries are, are that um, there are, uh, you know, these things called oncogenes that basically turn on and they drive a bunch of tumor growth. We thought, gosh, you know... We know what those are now. Maybe we can develop drugs to go after go after those things. Turn those off. Yeah, exactly. And so then we, we had a whole new kind of um, era where we were publishing papers and people were developing drugs um, against those. And, you know, people still do do that. Um, and then we started to see, gosh, these, these tumors are developing resistance mechanisms around these drugs that we have so cleverly developed. Right. And it's literally resistance to the drug. The drug. It's, like, not like, it's not co-evolution. It's, well, it is a little bit, but it's literally like... The tumors of 2017 are dramatically up level from the tumors of 2012. Well, so what happens? <laughs> so what happens is like you'll get a drug and it you know it binds to a certain place on the tumor. Sure. And we thought that was so clever and smart. And then we started to see, oh gosh, patients are are progressing on yep. those drugs now. Why are they progressing? And it's because that tumor has developed a mutation to where that drug binds, Got and it. that drug can no longer bind. It can no longer inhibit the tumor growth. So and just to understand though that yeah. which is kind of cool. It's like or interesting at least is um we're talking about like patient by patient basis right yeah. now these evolutions that happen right um in a given patient are they similar evolutions that you're seeing multiple times over and over and over or is it kind of like okay look we threw this weapon at it it evolved around this weapon and you see lots of different ways in which it evolves around the weapon yeah so um you you see um, so, so many patients will develop these resistance mechanisms. It's not like and they're one similar. off, and they're similar, yeah. um, but not the same. But, but not always the same, exactly. Right. And so, um, and, and there are lots of ways that patients become resistant, and we don't yet understand why. Yep. And you know, one of the things you know you would you would read about, I think, in today's you know New York Times, et cetera, right, is the rise of um, uh, you know oncology drugs that harness the the innate immune system, like right. our normal cells to seek out and find tumors. Yep. Um, and that has been a big area, um, too, of, of where, you know, for 20 years, folks have been trying to figure out what is it about the tumors that, that, that basically sell, you know, signal to the immune system. I'm actually normal. Don't yeah. eat me. Yeah. Right. Um, because tumors do that. And we had, we had never really figured out what that was, um, until recently, the last couple of years has been the rise of kind of immuno immunotherapies. Yep. Um, and there are drugs now on the market where you see amazing responders in about, you know, a third of patients yep. and they're super durable and, and maybe could be cures. Like we, we don't know that yet, but, but maybe, um, and, uh, you know, and yet in 70% of patients, 60% of patients, um, they like, it doesn't work and, yeah. and we don't entirely understand why not, right? Like what is it that the tumors are able to do that blocks this drug from working? We yeah. don't totally understand yet. So yeah. there's still lots, there's still lots out there, um, before we find a cure to everything, but, um, it's a pretty optimistic time to be in cancer drug development. Well, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so help me. So what do you, what comes next? Like what is... You know, I, I saw actually, I'm curious if you saw, did you see the New York Times this morning? They had an interesting article um, talking about how, it was actually about gene therapy mm. right? and how gene therapies are trying to hit the market mm -hmm. and they're at ridiculous prices yes. because the markets are so small, right? And yes. the economics around drugs and da, da 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 So it seems like there's obviously, there's a lot of excitement around gene therapy as kind of an interesting next step. I know not directly related. Like what, like, yeah. what does the world look like in 2020? 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, on the gene therapy front, um, definitely, I think, you know, in the next 2020 is only three years away, Yeah, but in, 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 in like three now. years, um, I think we see many more gene therapies come on the market because what, what we have realized now is, um, there are these, you know, essentially monogenetic one gene is messed up. Um, and we can now, um, we have figured out how to basically put that gene, uh, back into the human body and have it make whatever it is that it needs to make. Yep. Um, and that, that, um, potentially could cure some diseases. Um, and, and uh, the whole pricing, $475,000 for a course of, you know, one of these gene therapies that, that was, uh, that was uh, potentially approved, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think all of that still has to really get figured out. But, um, uh, you know, I think that, that folks will survive that didn't survive. Yeah. And that's, that is something worth paying for. So sure. the question is how. But yeah, I think... Three years from now, we're going to see more gene therapies. We're going to see more immune therapies mm -hmm. um, for oncology. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more um, uh, auto. So there's actually a big linkage between autoimmune disease and oncology. So as it turns out, like most human disease has something to do with inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that folks are making a lot of really great inroads into kind of how to, um, how to, you know, solve some of those diseases. So what's like your most, what is the most, you know, you say we're in the golden age and golden yeah. age things happen quickly sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like if you had to make bold, somewhat unlikely, but possible predictions, like what is the best case scenario for the oncology world of not distant, mm -hmm. distant future, I'm talking like immediate future, like 2020, like what is like, if like, what is practical that we could see in the difference between the world of today and the world of then? Yeah. So I think we'll have, uh, universal diagnostics where basically you go in, your tumor gets tested and they work up a panel of, you have this mutation, you have, you know, these immune markers, blah, blah, blah. And you will get, um, a much more tailored regimen than you get today. Um, we'll have, uh, many, many more drugs that are specifically, uh, designed for whatever, you know, sort of genetic background or molecular background, um, your tumor is. And we will be able to track, cause that's been one of the hard things over time is you could know at baseline what you are, yep. but you change, right? right? As we've talked about, like the tumor changes and evolves. Um, and I think we will have much better uh, markers through blood um, and, and serial testing to say your tumor is changing and now we've got to change the regimen. And is that how it works now? Like do you, if you, are you getting tested every week as you're on treatment or you just get tested once up front? So yeah, and then most- you see if you develop a resistance and that's kind of how it works. Yeah, and I would say like most patients in the United States today, they are, you know, they'll get, they'll get, um, you know, the tests done up front, but then it's really a, a crapshoot on whether you get any more testing done, um, in part because it's invasive. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times you have to go back in and yep. get tissue, right? Which not every patient wants to do. And so what a lot of people have been working on is how do we find blood markers, right? Yep. Um, so that we can go in and sort of serially um, figure out what the tumor's doing. Um, and um, so, I, and I think people have made great progress on that front. Um, and then, um, you know, most patients too, I mean, the only sort of, you know, serial testing they're getting is, 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 you know, kind of old school scans, right? Yep. They're just getting imaging of, is the tumor growing? Is it shrinking? And that's really all the doc has to know kind of, okay, I think we should switch you or, okay, I think you're good for now. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not super rigorous, but it, I think that the tools are getting developed so that it can so be. So tools are going to develop. And then, I mean, I assume, do we already have the measurement technology we need? And it's just a matter of, I mean, like, how much is this invention versus deployment? Mm, a lot of it is, um, is 
invention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people are further along on the, you know, sort of blood test. I would say like sort of blood testing in general is more deployment. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, more accurate, finding more accurate markers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, that's more on the kind of invention and discovery and side of all things. Of, so so yeah. how much is this done again, talking to a lay person, but yeah. obviously I was interested is like, how much is this done with like tissue live tests versus simulation modeling computers at this point? You mean in terms of like, are you progressing? Are you not progressing? Are you progressing? Are you not progressing? But also just even like how we think about like the mutations, like are we able to model any of this stuff yet? Not really. No. So this is all literally like blood samples and like running data through the system. And so there there ends up having to be like, even once you're doing like, in terms of the chicken and the egg problem, like we're going to have to get to the point where from a deployment perspective, we're yeah. doing a lot more consistent testing before we'll have, be able to feed it back into the system to understand from a data perspective. Like what what's predictive, like. right? Exactly. Right. And like, what is a front runner for, you know, we know you're going to be this way in six months, so let's get ahead of it. Yeah. That is, um, is really early days, but, but folks are definitely thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. So what, like, Okay, so we've been very optimistic in this conversation. Yeah, very optimistic. Let's be really pessimistic. Oh, like, that's not my nature. Okay. I know, but like, well, you, this is, you gotta stretch yourself. This is a <laughs> modest conversation. So, like, if we're gonna be really pessimistic for a second, and again, like, my pessimism, if I were trying to, I'd say, curmudgeonly, it's like, I, I've read articles popular in, you know, non scientific journals for a very long time about how mm-hmm. we're always on the edge mm-hmm. of solving everything mm-hmm. with cancer, right? Um, if in 2020 we're really depressed because it turns out we like went through a thing we thought we were really smart, right? Like, you know, kind of the, the most egregious or silly examples would be like, you know, we, we, we thought we nailed the human genomes. So we could clone really well. Turns out a little more complicated than that. Like, <laughs> right. What, like, what is the next, like, why are we depressed in 2020? Yeah. Yeah. What doesn't pan out? Right. So, um, not to pick on immunotherapy, but um, there has been uh, you know, so much excitement and I think great progress there. Um, but as I mentioned, like we still don't understand why it doesn't work, why some of these therapies don't work in 70% of patients. Um, and folks like we now- We literally don't know why. Like, they should work and like they should there's just work. no reason they're not working, but the, most of the time they don't work. They should work. And yeah, we, we don't understand why. And and what's um you know what what the field has done is is thrown now a bunch of um you know so so we have this this drug and it's approved and it's immunotherapy and now we're gonna try to combine a bunch of stuff with it, yeah. right? Um you saw this happen to kind of HIV therapies, right? And so folks are trying to do the same thing in oncology, which is okay, we ha- we have something that, that kind of works. Maybe if we add and bolt more stuff onto it, um we That's can make it I work in more more people <laughs> exactly it's a good it strategy doesn't taste good but if i yeah. mix it with other things if i just add more salt <laughs> uh, so um so uh so folks are trying to do this and and um you know there might be some successes that come out of it but i think there will be probably more failures than there are successes that come out of that just because um a little bit we're shooting in the dark yeah interesting so is there any like i mean i'm just again thinking in very very simplistic analogies, but like we went through a period again where everyone was obsessed with DNA and then it turns out that RNA is kind of important, mm. right? Or like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the kind of progression. Is there like, is there a parallel in this world? Like, is there a thing where like, you know, we talk about like, okay, we see these, you know, these super smart cancers that evolve mm-hmm. really quickly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, we can try to like slow them down, slow down their evolutionary rate, or we can, you know, but like, is there another... I don't know. Is there a thing that if you had to guess, there's like another click down the rabbit hole to go? Or do you think we have a pretty clear map of how this stuff works at this point? Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that could be kind of the, 
the the unexpected um, sort of learning from all of this is is you know we've we've focused on you know a lot of these sort of you know to use a phrase that my dad would use newfangled approaches um, for for oncology that are so clever. That's eternal gray endearment. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and and what what you know I think there's increasing evidence could happen is that actually some of the old school chemos are. Uh, pretty good in, for example, in combination with immunotherapies. You don't need um, kind of all of these new mechanisms to go after the tumor. You, what you might need is some damage of the DNA, which is what, ke- what chemo does. Yep. And then when the tumor has kind of exploded and its DNA has gone out into the uh, into the into the so body's send, ether, send in the cleanup crew. then you send in the cleanup crew, and then oh my gosh, they start to recognize, you know, this is what a tumor's DNA looks like. We can go hunt for other things that look like this. Got it. So it may be a return to um, you know some of the old school tricks. So at this point, I mean, basically, chemo is still like by f- the thing people do. Right? It is the thing that is kind of typically first line. And do you think is, is there like any chance that in twenty twenty chemo is like taught in, in medical school as like a historical anomaly or a, no sadly not no happen. not in three years um maybe maybe 2030 and i think you know different different tumor types will go different ways right like breast cancer has made huge strides because you know there's so many survivors there's so much money going into breast cancer research um you know it's not a death sentence right anymore um there are other tumor types that are much more rare much more aggressive and you know chemo will probably stay the backbone of those therapies for quite a while sadly fair enough yeah. fair enough so you talked a lot about you know at a cursory level at a, at a Sam level, the science on some of this stuff. Um, what about like the policy stuff around it? Like mm. how do like, you know, where are we in kind of the policy landscape of how drugs go from ideas and scientists heads yeah. to things that get tested, things that get deployed? Like, are we in a good direction in that yeah. from your perspective? I, you know, I think we are in an in- increasingly, um, uh, more positive direction. So, uh, a, um, the kind of head of um, FDA is is someone who I think has really good and sort of forward thinking thoughts about drug development, and I think is 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 quite pragmatic when it comes to you know balancing a you know I think the job of the FDA, which is to you know assess efficacy versus risk, right, yep. of, of drugs, um, and make sure that they're regulated appropriately, but also balance that with, you know, when you see kind of early signs of you know good efficacy, kind of given you know the appropriate safety profile for whatever that context is to make sure those drugs can reach patients maybe in a, in a quicker sort of pace than they, than the, the old FDA process would have it. And, you know, the, the FDA um, now has things like breakthrough therapy designation, which causes kind of drugs to be approved, potentially approved and and on a quicker development path so that they can get to patients. What, like a year, two years Um, like from idea or like, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I think the, the breakthrough therapy designation has probably accelerated um, drugs by, you know, potentially three or four years. Like it would have taken them three or four years longer to get to the full kind of patient population instead of just those patients who are able, you know, and lucky enough to get into those clinical trials. So it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty big um, in terms of, of access. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think, I think the FDA is, is evolving. I mean, they have a really tough job to do, right? Which For is sure. they have to, they have to balance sort of public safety with promise of, of, of new therapies. Yeah, for sure. I have a question for you. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the kind of AI space and machine learning space has increasingly sort of crept into drug development. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see that going? So I'm not sure I'm smart enough to answer that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think, you know, at the end of the day, 
I think the interesting space, I mean, AI is it's a branding term, right? Like basically it's like, can we build big data sets and do statistics on them? <laughs> right? Like, let's It not sounds much sexier than that though. Yeah. But I mean, I think, and the answer is, is like, actually I wouldn't undercut its value or its importance. Like the reality is, is like our ability to process, especially in easy ways, like with systems that like a doctor could plug into massive amounts of data at this point is like just a different world than where it was before, but yeah. you need the data, right? Um, and then you still need, you know, a lot of time and effort and smarts and understanding what the problem is and breaking it down and go after it. I mean, to me, it's inconceivable that in concept, you won't end up marrying these things. When you think about like what a clinical study is or how people are doing this study, I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? That like, and this goes back to the whole question about how much you can model versus how much you're doing by hand is that if you, if you like literally need a human, right, for every single data point and to like track that human over time, like, the rate of your data collection and therefore what you can do with it and the extrapolations you can build on top of it and the yeah. patterns you can seek, it's just a lot harder than if you can say, okay, like we understand the basic mechanisms of a principle and we can run billions of simulations, yeah. right? Or whatever yeah. it ends up being. So, I mean, I don't know. Again, like from my perspective, which I feel like I reasonably understand the computer side of this, right? And like only partially understand the the health side of it. I, I my, my assumption would be like the real unlocking would come, would come down to a place of like, is there a way to dramatically increase the rate at which we can run simulations and collect data? Um, and if you can do that, then I think all of a sudden the machine learning techniques seems like they'll be extremely important, right? Yeah. Um, and they might be really important things like designing exactly like how these drugs work. Um, but it is kind of annoying, right? That like in the end of the day, like you think about different data densities and where you can get the information to build from and like build smart models on top of. I mean, a human, like, there aren't that many of them. <laughs> right. Right. And there aren't that many of them in whatever scenario you need them to be in. And just, you gotta, like, actually deal with human time versus, you know, the real innovation in spaces comes where you just have, like, you're able to speed things up a thousand times, yep. right? Or a million times or a billion times. Yes. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think, like, you know, um, right, these, these, drug libraries that um, are housed in pharma are, are so large and, um, you know, cataloged. And we now have better ideas of kind of even just the images of like where drugs need to bind yeah. and exactly how they need to bind for it to be as specific as possible so that you don't have, you know, safety issues or yeah. whatever the, the specific issue is. And I just imagine a world where, um, and again, this is an area I know very little about, but, um, you know, machine vision and all I've heard about it improving, for like sure. that has got to be better than a human. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And like, I'm sure that that's, I'm sure there are some, I mean, my, you know, you know, because I joke about it, but I'm also quite serious about it. Like, I, I really believe in like AI, right? Which is artificial, artificial intelligence. This idea that like, we're going to get to the point, certainly in drugs or in anything else anytime soon, where like the machines just design the answer, right? It's just like ridiculous, right? But the idea that when you think about what does it take to go from eh, a thesis or an idea to like a successful drug with the right safety guard, I mean, if you told me that in that production process, there's like 10 specific steps where all of a sudden better machine vision and 50 other things actually do really dramatically help you. They're not going to solve the problem for you, but they take out eight sub problems, yeah. right? So you can focus your attention on only the problems that really you do need. Um, you need where you don't have enough data or you need more intuition, right? Um, I always talk about how like technology is making human jobs more human. Um, in a lot of ways, because it takes away all the rote stuff for the yeah. stuff that's semi-rote. I'm sure that'll be the case in this space as well, right? Very cool. I can't um, wait for that day. Well, I don't think it'll be one day, right? I think it'll be a whole series of little days yeah. that are almost imperceptible. I, I think that's, you know, this is kind of a different direction, but like, 
today, like we, we just, you know, the, the iPhone 10 X launched. Right. And I had this moment thinking about this where like, it's fine. It seems cool. Right. It's better than the iPhone I use, although I'll stick with the one I use cause it's too big. Right. But here's the thing. It's like, if you would have given that device to someone even like a few years ago, it would have been like unbelievable. People would have been like, what? This is like right. literally like black magic, right? right? But the reality is, is like the way technology ends up usually rolling out, it's like kind of boiling the frog where it happens so incrementally and little pieces get chipped away and little pieces get chipped away. And then you're like, holy shit, we're in this totally new place. But like, it doesn't feel totally new. It just kind of feels like, okay, cool. It's like slightly better. Yeah. You know, and yeah. like, I think that's kind of probably the way this process, and the interesting thing is regulation kind of plays a different role in this. And there, I'm sure there will be breakthrough moments, but that's gotta be my expectation is yeah. like for any researcher or scientist in the field, they probably like, will look back in 10 years and be like, Oh my God, my job is completely different. And we have all these things we had never had before. Right. But on like a day to day, month to month basis, like a bunch of tools will probably just keep getting slightly better. Yeah. I have to say, I had a really fun moment with my dad the other day, who is not a, you know, doesn't live here in the, in, in, in the Valley. Um, and, uh, he, he's recently gotten his first iPhone. And so I've been teaching him how to use FaceTime, which, you know, I think when we all first started using FaceTime was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can see a person when I'm talking to them. But anyway, he hasn't had sort of all of those incremental changes yeah, that you, yeah. you mentioned. And so we had a fun moment the other day where, uh, he was very unsafely driving around, um, in his car, but, but, but on FaceTime. Oh my God, he's me. the first person to ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I can't believe it. It hasn't lost the range. I can still see you. I'm like, Dad, you're going to be able to see me this entire drive. Okay. <laughs> the range. I'm it's sorry like... to ruin the surprise for you. <laughs> He's like, hold on. Let me drive another few miles and see if I can still see you. That's exactly what happened. So I went with him on all of his errands. <laughs> and uh, and I stayed you know, connected to him the whole time. So That's awesome. So I'm trying to think. In, in just, as you're thinking this through... I'm curious, like, if you could pick an area mm-hmm. in this whole messy, complicated world, but also very exciting world, mm-hmm. right? Um, what's going on in oncology and things like that. If you could change, we'll start with the more broad, if you could change one thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, magic wand, forget, like, incremental improvements, just, like, take out a problem mm-hmm. or, or change something about the configuration of the problem. What would it be? This is not at all what we talked about with, with regards to kind of the drugs themselves, but... Um, I would, um, if I had a magic wand, I wish that I could sort of will patients that that are potential candidates for clinical trials who have these, you know, mutations or whatever it is, these markers we now know are, are potentially important to 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 connect them with the right center that could put them on a drug that might be active. Like patients, especially clinical trial patients, are the true heroes of this space. I mean, they you know sacrifice um, you know sometimes their lives, um, but but with the promise of of you know helping develop new drugs. Um, but but really, the big bottleneck is finding the right patient to enroll in these studies, those right patients that have these underlying, you know, whatever molecular abnormality is that you're interested in and getting them on that specific drug so that you can see if there's an efficacy. So I have to ask a question on. about that, which is, yeah. that is the most practical magic wand waving thing I've heard in a while. It's it a actually doesn't bu- seem like in the scheme of things mm-hmm. you could have waved your wand I know. to fix. That seems like pretty tractable. It, it does. And yet it's super, it's super hard to find these patients because they're oh, so God. like the, t- the, percentage, the incidence of whatever issue, you know, whatever sort of molecular abnormality you're looking for oftentimes is quite low. Like one to 2% of sure. patients have the thing that the drug could be used for. Okay. But just help me out with this because I yeah. think this is like a really interesting yeah. point. Um, is like, 
is the problem that they don't know they have the mutation? Is the problem that's the problem? Is that they, basically there's not enough testing to there's know? There's not that. testing. They don't know that clinical trials are an option for them because there are these dynamics where some you know oncologists want to sort of keep the patient captive and don't want to refer them on to a different center. Um, there that's are pretty messed up. It, trust me, the whole the whole our whole healthcare system um, when you dig a little bit deeper can get um, pretty messed up. But uh, uh, so yeah, so it's it's not tested. Um, you know problems with kind of you know who their who their physicians are um, knowledge about you know just wh- you know what clinical trial might I qualify for that like if you go to the government site which is what folks have to go to to figure out where clinical trials are it's just a mess like I can barely read it and I'm pretty you know knowledgeable in this space for what to look for to figure out whether you qualify for something or not is totally difficult hmm. um, and then um, and then there's a lot of questions about like you know is it expensive how do I do this you know oh, gosh I have to travel to the trial site what is that like and so on and so so if I could wave a magic wand, it is so boring, but so important because it is the major bottleneck for why can't, why can't how long it you takes. You like, see the company doing that. I mean, that just like, it seems like a very, yeah. dare I even say easy problem? Yeah, I don't think it's things. easy, but um, there are some folks kind of trying to work on it in the, in the space, but it's a, it's a. It's a really hard, um, it's a really hard problem. But why? Is it like an incentive problem between, is it like, like what do you, you have, have to solve? To, so you have to if you fix, tell me that you just have to like put a web server up. No, 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 no. You have to fix like, you know, the physician, right, has to test the patient. So you either have to make sure all physicians are testing patients for all of these mutations that most physicians don't even know exist or are actionable. Um, you, but is there, if they knew, is there any reason not to? Um, is it expensive? They, they, it, there might be a reason not to. So they might reconcile it as, um, you know, even if I test you for all these things, like I don't know that the drug is active. Like why, why am I giving you all this information as a lay patient when you're not going to know what to do with it? And frankly, I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, then there's the dynamic of physicians don't want to lose patients that are under their care and have them under the care of someone else. That's not something a website can fix, unfortunately. No, that's um, an incentive problem. Yeah, that's an incentive problem. And then um, I'm trying to think what else I uh, I mentioned as 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 problematic with it. Oh, just low low incidence. So you know you've got to sort of you know get a ton of people in the funnel at the top yeah, no, to then get them get one patient enrolled. Mm. Well, honestly, of this whole conversation, which I very much have appreciated, that is probably the most optimistic thing I feel like I've taken out of this entire conversation, <laughs> which is. If the biggest problem we face that we can't solve right now is like a slight incentive problem or a real incentive problem, I'd say, and like a data problem, that seems like that's a language I understand. Yeah. It seems like I thought you were going to like tell me some specific science problem that was like intractable. So yeah. So like, I feel like that's the biggest problem that like feels tractable to me that we could solve and have like a really big impact on. Like it feels like the biggest problem that we could, that like there might be levers to solve if someone smarter than I could start a company in that space and do that in a ethical way. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. Um, Cause anyway, last, last thing you get into some issues around like, so let's say you find a patient, match that patient to, you know, you, you name it drugs, you know, drug companies trial. Does the drug company pay you for that patient? And then are you sort of incentivized in perhaps strange ways, highest bidder ways to put patients into sort of the highest payer? I mean, so there, there's sort of complexity there around that. I hear that. Although yeah. it is interesting. I mean, to me, I think this is one of those things where maybe there's a role for government. There are some places, yeah. right, where capitalism yeah. purely doesn't work and you do need to create some laws. Yeah. Scary thought, right? It is. It is. Anyway, Bracken, 
Always a pleasure. Thanks for talking. This was so fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Fantastic. Good to see you.